Station 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlaub, pop culture critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, here with classical music critic Joshua Cosman. Welcome, Joshua. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. Today we meet a countertenor, an artistic profession I'm ashamed to say I hadn't heard of before. Uh, Who is our guest today, and how common is this profession? Our guest is a young singer named Ari Nussbaum-Cohen, who's about to make his debut at the San Francisco Opera in Handel's Orlando. Um, There's no reason to be ashamed of it. It's not all that common in the operatic world and certainly uh, is kind of a new thing on on the operatic stage in the last few decades. So a countertenor, as Ari talks about in our uh, interview is a male singer who sings falsetto, basically. Uh-huh. So gets those nice high notes that even tenors don't reach in their normal voice. Yeah, I think we have some audio of Mr. Cohen will play right now. So, Joshua, why do we have countertenors in 2019? Well, it's a good question. One reason is so that we can get singers who can sing the music that was written in the Baroque period in the 17th and 18th century for singers called castrati or castrados, uh, singers who had been uh, surgically uh, prepared for this line of work (laughs) as young boys, uh, something that we no longer do, thank God. But um, (laughs) this this is a particular kind of voice that's very high lying male voice. And the only way to do that really now is to get uh, singers like uh, Aria Cohen to sing in that high falsetto tone. And we'll we'll get to hear him uh, soon? Yeah, he's going to be pr- appearing in Handel's Orlando at the San Francisco Opera opening on uh, Sunday the 9th of June. Excellent. Well, it's an excellent interview. I learned a lot. Uh, I was producing and listening to it. And I'm glad our listeners are going to get to meet him. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. Aria Nussbaum-Cohen, welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle. So glad you're here. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a lot about you and your career, but I want to start actually for people who may not know, what the heck is a countertenor anyway? It's not one of the more commonly encountered voice types in opera. So give us a little explainer on what it is that you actually do. Absolutely. So uh, put simply, a countertenor is a man who sings in the voice range traditionally associated with a woman. Um, there's a lot of terminology and all sorts of things involved, but I won't get into too you know too much of the semantics. But basically, we sing in what's also known as falsetto, um, which is kind of a means of voice production that um, modifies the amount of the vocal cord that you use to vibrate, so that you can vibrate at a higher frequency and thus produce higher pitches than a man usually can. Um, but we sing music mostly that was written um, kind of before 1750 and then after 1950. So we sing a lot of music that was written for the castrati, these castrated singers of the Baroque era. Um, and then since the countertenor voice has reemerged in the last 70 or so years, composers have started writing a lot of music um, 
for countertenors specifically as well. So we sing kind of more contemporary things as well. Okay. Do you want to give us a little two-second demonstration of what you're talking about, as long as we're here on, on audio? <laughs> um, just the... the Oh, oh, well, just of like what uh, the voice range? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> um, We don't have a piano here. No, but. I know. I'm just trying to think. So the voice range a man traditionally sings in, I would probably be a really bad baritone or tenor. I've always been a countertenor, so I never trained my kind of more traditional manly voice. So it's terrible. Um, I say I'm the world's worst baritone. But, you know, a traditional man's speak- speaking voice is around where his singing voice is. So, ah, uh, you know, something like that. Again, I've never taken a lesson uh, <laughs> for that range. But I sing much higher, so I sing more like, you know, that kind of range is what we're talking. And a tenor would be somewhere in between those two? Uh, yeah, a tenor's just a little bit higher, but in the but in the, the type of the former. The same I, voice. Yeah. yeah, got it. So it's an interesting decision that you made at some point to, to do this, and I guess early on, right? So what was it yeah. that drew you to this, or was it just the voice said, this is what I want to do, and you don't have a say in it? Absolutely. So I'm lucky. Most countertenors have a kind of aha moment where they realize they can sing as a countertenor and make a switch from being a baritone or a tenor. I'm the rare case. I've always been a countertenor. So I sang in children's choirs starting when I was about 10 or 11 years old, which is how I first kind of got involved in music, classical music and otherwise. Um, And then when my voice dropped when I was in, you know, seventh grade, sixth grade, something like that, um, I didn't know what a countertenor was, but I enjoyed singing in the children's choir. Uh, so I just kind of finagled and kept singing these, you know, treble notes that a boy soprano can sing, but that a man normally can't. Um, and so I think just from singing in that range every day, starting when my voice dropped, it just sort of built up over time and into a relatively strong kind of countertenor voice, quote unquote. So this was all about you just not wanting to give up the children's choir. Basically, and mainly because in the children's choir, we got to do a lot of incredible things like singing backup for Elton John and Billy Joel and James Taylor and Cheryl Crow. And we were singing with the New York Philharmonic and at Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center all the time and all these crazy things. So, okay, I mean, so there's more. To, so what is this children's choir? This yeah. is not your, your local church choir yeah. or synagogue yeah. choir or whatever yeah. it is. This is something special. What was what was this organization? So this was the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, um, which is there are kind of two premier children's choirs in New York City that are rivals. And it's actually quite a story. They are run by former ex-spouses. Um, so it's quite a, there's, there's a lot there. But um, so I was in the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, uh, which is a fabulous organization that kind of, you know, you audition for as a kid and there's many training levels and then the concert choir, which gets to do all of the sort of premiere engagements. So I auditioned for the choir when I was probably 10 or 11 or something like that. I went to Jewish day school growing up in Brooklyn, in New York, and I was at the birthday party of a friend of mine, Elias, and this was back when American Idol was really big. And he had an American Idol-themed birthday party, which I guess we would now just call a karaoke party or something (laughs) like that. But, you know, it was an American Idol party. Everyone sang their kind of favorite song with the lyrics projected up on the TV or whatever. And so I sang whatever song it was. And after the party, I think one of my parents came to pick me up or something, and his mom, Frances, said to my mom, you know, Ari, he's really, he's got a great voice. You know, that's not your average kid singing at the birthday party. And she said, okay. (laughs) Um, She said, no, really, like, you've got to do something with that. And my parents said, okay. And so they looked and it so happened that down the block in Brooklyn from the day school that I was going to was this choir called the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. So they knocked on the door, went in there and I auditioned. And I guess I had some inherent musical ability. Who knows where it came from? I don't come from a musical family at all, but I did like a few months in the intermediate kind of level and then I was immediately advanced to the concert choir level which got to do all of those really fun things and so I sang in that choir for a number of years and 
uh, that's where I first learned how to read music and I mean first developed my musical ears in any way uh, and um, you know just got to work with a lot of amazing conductors which as a kid you know what does it mean that you know this person's conducting that person's conducting I mean even as a kid what does it mean that you're singing backup for Elton John or Billy Joel to you it's just what I'm doing I'm a 12 year old kid my parents say I go to rehearsal and then I go here and okay yeah when you're you know at a sold out Madison Square Garden standing behind them you know you know it's pretty cool <laughs> but you don't know how cool it is so it's definitely something that in hindsight I look back on and realize wow those were some amazing opportunities to have as just a random kid living in Brooklyn that's great and then so you go off to Princeton mm-hmm. to study like international relations exactly. or something public with, policy with, with no thought of a musical career at that point no or? and actually despite having all this exposure to music including classical music as a kid I had never been to an opera um, I don't come from a, an opera going family or a symphony going family or anything like that my dad's a big kind of classic rock guy was a huge deadhead but you know that's the music that I grew up on definitely not Handel and Bach or anything like that um, so I went to LaGuardia High School of the Performing Arts in New York which is from known in fame the movie the and TV school. show the fame school so um and again, I had amazing opportunities there. Just, you know, we were singing major works with orchestra every semester, and I sang the alto solo in Handel's Messiah when I was, you know, a junior or something. Again, just doing what I was told, whatever. But, um, you know, in hindsight, I look back, and I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I had at that time. Um, and then, but but I didn't have any inkling of a, an opera career or a professional music career or anything like that. I wanted to go into politics. So I didn't apply to any conservatories and ended up at Princeton where I was a public policy major and, um, you know, intended to maybe go to law school after college and go into a life of policy work. I'll say with today's politics, I sure I'm glad I found another route. Um, But while I was at Princeton, I started singing in the Glee Club, which is the kind of main choir on campus um, because I'd always enjoyed singing in choir starting when I was a kid and through LaGuardia as well. And part of being in the Glee Club was that you got free voice lessons as well, paid for by the university. So that's when I first started studying with a voice teacher. In college. In college, yeah, Um, which wasn't that long ago. (laughs) You're (laughs) 25? um, I'm 25, yeah. So I graduated in 2015, so coming up on four years ago now. But um, So I started studying with a voice teacher, but again, it was just something I was doing for fun and, you know, grateful to have a little bit of, you know, teaching and vocal technique or anything like that. I'd been singing for many years, but without any real private instruction. Um, So, you know, that's going along. And then a kind of fateful event happened in my life, which is that I won a free ticket from the Princeton Music Department to see my first opera. So someone donated back to the university a subscription to the Metropolitan Opera of like four seats. You know, it's like a 10 opera subscription maybe over the course of the season um, on the grand tier, some of the best seats in the house. And they have a lottery where you just, you know, they put a sign up in the lobby of the music building. And on that day, you go to the administrative office, you put your name in the little bin, and they pick out the four winners. So I was entering over the course of my freshman year, and then I think it was the very end of my freshman year, I finally win the lottery. And again, the opera lottery, not the real lottery. (laughs) But for me, it was the real lottery. Um, So, and I had been entering for, you know, who knows what operas, and I knew really nothing about opera. And it so happened that the opera I won a ticket for was La Boheme. Um, So just my luck, it's, you know, probably the best first opera there is. And the Mets production of it is this grand spectacle directed by Franco Zeffirelli, who's, you know, one of these legendary opera directors of yore. And um, it was just this transformative night where I was really blown away. And I went back to campus and I said, you know, okay, this is something I want to explore a little bit more seriously. And then 
one thing led to the next. I got this fellowship from the university for the summer after my sophomore year to kind of explore opera and classical music more deeply. Um, and I got a lot of great exposure and just opportunity to work with some amazing people that summer. And the feedback I got was that because I was a countertenor, again, not really knowing what a countertenor was or anything like that, but you know, um, the feedback I got was, oh, you know, there are so few countertenors and you're naturally gifted enough that if you really put yourself to this, there's a some, you know, there's a slim chance, there's something of a chance that maybe you'll be able to make a career out of it. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if I keep on going on the path I'm going, I'll probably always look back and think, what if I didn't try this? Uh, what if I didn't try to make a career in the arts? And so I went back to campus and I changed my major to history and I ended up studying the history behind most of the music that I sang from the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and I started to take music a lot more seriously and, you know, one thing led to the next and here we are. <laughs> Great. So even though you knew that this was going to be a career that wouldn't involve singing Bohem or anything mm -hmm. by Puccini <laughs> or anything by Verdi or anything by Wagner or any of that standard classical repertoire that forms the bulk of what we hear in the opera house you said you know i'll take i'll take the early stuff and the late stuff give me that i don't even think i really knew uh -huh. <laughs> you know i You've, didn't really know what i was getting into but yeah. but i was just so wowed by um just seeing the emotion that these singers were were singing with on stage and that's you know the thing that i love most about opera is that it's the combination of all these art forms and when it opera is at its best it expresses these deep human emotions that we don't necessarily feel or see every day, but it expresses these emotions in such a deep way. And I think that's what I kind of felt when I was in the audience that night and figured, you know, oh my God, if I can do that, I want to give I want to give that a whirl. So you get out of Princeton and then you, what, start looking around for other places to study? or Well, so I am um, coming out of Princeton. I had decided I wanted to pursue music. Now, again, I was willfully ignorant. I mean, even at that time I was practicing, quote unquote, but I had never been exposed to like being around a group of elite singers or anything like that. So for me, practicing was just learning music. I had no real semblance of like practicing my vocal technique or anything like that. Um, and so coming out of school, I knew I wanted to delve more deeply into all of that. So I applied to a bunch of post-grad fellowship programs, a number of grad schools where I would pursue a master's in music, you know, in kind of vocal performance to really hone those skills. And I got into the finals for like everything I applied to, almost every single thing, every fellowship program, every grad program. And then in the span of about a week, I got rejected from everything that I applied to. Oh no. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had taken myself off of uh, a kind of more prescripted path into this kind of more volatile career in the arts and all of my close friends at Princeton were going into their jobs either in finance consulting or tech <laughs> each with a six-figure you know uh, salary coming up and here I was and you know they were all worried about me I was worried a little bit but I said you know what I still think I have something to contribute I feel like I do have something to prove in a sense and um, so I moved back to New York and I worked as an SAT ACT tutor to pay the bills which as a Princeton grad was a kind of relatively lucrative part-time job that I could get into and um, and I just practiced every day for hours and I built my own kind of grad program essentially where I took voice lessons and had coachings and private music theory lessons and all these kinds of things and I kind of curated my own experience um, you know without the aid of these experts really guiding me but uh, I guess it worked out okay I was lucky then that fall right after I had been rejected from everything and I'm living back in New York um, I auditioned for the Merrill Opera Program, which is like the summer intensive at San Francisco Opera. And I had applied to all of the big kind of summer young artist programs in the country. And it was the only one I even got an audition for. I didn't get an audition at most of the programs. And I went in and, you know, advanced to the callbacks. And then I felt very fortunate that Sherry and Mark, who kind of head up the program here, 
they took a chance on me and they heard my potential. I had a lot of work left to do and a lot of honing to do, but you know, obviously I had a good a, enough potential to hopefully be worth investing in. Um, and I felt very, very fortunate to then be invited to Marilla. And um, while I was here in San Francisco at Maryland, that was my first real time in San Francisco and I just loved spending time here. Um, but while you're in Maryland, you get to sing for a lot of the big casting directors of American opera companies and the people who run the young artist programs, the kind of more intensive training programs of American opera companies. and. So I got to sing an audition for all those people basically in one day. And luckily I was relatively well rested and I went in and I rocked the audition and it opened up a lot of doors for me. And uh, then that next year is when I won the Metropolitan Opera competition and a number of other competitions. And uh, one thing led to the next and here we are. You get your foot in the door one time and and the rest comes. And yeah, if if the dice kind of fall a certain way. So I was, you know, I'm forever indebted and just forever grateful to the folks here at San Francisco Opera for believing believing in me really and, and investing in me and in my potential. So you set out to pursue this career in music in this niche. I keep saying niche. I mean, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking about people who, who take a more traditional path and they say, well, I know who all the great singers are of earlier generations, all the other great tenors and the sopranos that I've grown up listening to or have learned to listen to. You come into it in a, in a field where there's really only you know, a, a couple of generations worth of role mm-hmm. models because we've only been doing this countertenor thing for, as you say, since about 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? where did you go to, to sort of look for uh, inspiration or role modeling, if anywhere, or did you just make it up? Yeah, well, I'll say I had been listening to countertenors before that. I, you know, knew I was a quote-unquote countertenor. I had no intentions to, you know, I was still singing alto and choirs, but I had no intentions to make a career as a countertenor or anything like that. So when I was in high school, I think the first countertenor I ever really heard was Andreas Scholl, the great German countertenor. And there was this CD of his titled Ombra Maifu, a beautiful Handel Arias. And that was probably the first thing that I just kind of listened to over and over and over. And this was back when I had a Walkman and, you know, all these uh, all these kinds of things. I have two younger sisters and I frequently kind of admonish them, but all the technology they have that even I didn't have, you know. <laughs> but, um, and then I found you know, other countertenors who Andreas's voice is beautiful and it has this incredible purity of artistic expression. Um, but then I found other singers who brought other things that I thought were, you know, things I liked even more maybe. And, and one of the singers who, of course, became a great idol of mine was David Daniels and, and his Handle Dash Aria's CD, which was kind of his CD that burst him onto the scene in the late 90s. That CD I then kind of again, listen to over and over and, and, and onwards. And I listened to a lot of countertenors, but those were the two who probably were most kind of formative in my listening. Let's talk a little bit about about Medora and about Orlando, this opera that uh, you're going to be in, in, in the uh, San Francisco Opera in June. Have you? This is the first time you've sung the role? It is, yeah. Tell us who it is and what the story is. Absolutely. So uh, in our production, the opera is kind of updated to a specific day in 1940s in a, in a military hospital in West London. And it's actually, I think it's really thoughtfully done. And our director, Harry Fair, is this really brilliant, really smart guy. And everything is so intentional um, in how he's updated it and um, kind of you know, change the circumstances around certain things from what's written. I mean, the opera is originally written to be set in a kind of mythical forest, uh, you know, with uh, this kind of stage effects that would have been done during Handel's time or, 
you know, quite wild, you know, of chariots coming down from the skies and, you know, all these sorts of things. But um, so Medoro, in our production, he's a kind of wounded warrior who's in the hospital, who's set to get out soon. And Orlando, the title character, who's in some senses his foe, um, Orlando is this... Uh, Orlando is an injured Air Force pilot um, who is kind of very important to the ongoing war effort in World War II. But Medoro is a really, um, I mean, I think fundamentally he's a he's someone who just loves really deeply and he's kind of caught up in this love triangle of sorts. And uh, But he's someone who, at the end of the day, I think really has good intentions. And, um, you know, everyone has, there's a lot going on in the opera, of course, the, you know, uh, handle plots especially are notoriously convoluted in kind of fun ways. Um, but Medora, at the end of the day, I think really just is following his heart, and that leads him to um, to have some complicated circumstances. But ultimately, he does what he thinks is best. Yeah. What he thinks is best. And just a couple months ago, you gave this magnificent performance as uh, David. Mm. Yes, it was it was tremendous. <laughs> oh, I, I was you. there. I heard you uh, in it, with Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra yep. in hand, another Handel. This mm-hmm. this one an oratorio uh, Saul, which is sort of the the other side of Handel's. Uh, creative career, the Italian operas and the English oratorios. Do you feel when you go back and forth between those, I mean, I think from a distance they kind of can all sound a a little Mm -hmm. bit sort of like the same or variations on a theme, but do you think there's a difference in the way he writes in the English language oratorios versus the Italian operas now that you've done those back to back? Yeah, I mean, I think... uh I think there are obviously things that are different and even when I'm doing my preparations and the kind of character research that I like to do, of course, the oratorios are mostly based on biblical characters and it's all these biblical stories. So the source material, I think, is, well, I'm trying to even think how to put this, that the source material in the oratorios Handel uses in slightly different ways than he does the libretti in the operas, maybe. And I think there were sensitivities around the way the ways that biblical characters were presented on the stage in London in a religious country at the time. Um, but at the end of the day, the drama that he brings is just as you know profound in the oratorios as it is in the operas, and I don't think that he gets enough credit for that. Yeah. And that's something that I loved kind of bringing out and digging into and even just researching. I mean, I was lucky in this case, the character of King David is a biblical character whose past is, whose story is so rich and there's so much depth to it, so much kind of controversy that, you know, in how people interpret things that are in the Bible. And I mean, even I mean, many scholars think it's the first example of homosexual love in, in the Bible. And, you know, that is a very controversial interpretation, but one that I think textually you can probably see. And um, so it's just kind of interesting to delve into the history behind a character like David, just as it is a character like Medoro in Orlando, who, you know, I was reading the epic poem by Ariosto, Orlando Furioso, and looking into the historical background. But, um, you know, I think fundamentally the drama that Handel brings to both is really exceptional. Got it. Um, So we talked a little bit about, just in passing, about the 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 modern day renaissance of the of the um, countertenor and you said 1950 and I, I mean the meaning of that year is mm-hmm. that's the year that Benjamin Britten writes Midsummer Night's Dream mm-hmm. and with this uh, I think that's the year I mm-hmm. better I think so I it's, yeah, it's yeah. Some, it's, around there it's yeah. around there <laughs> we can fact check this yeah. later um, but right right in around there where he writes this uh, role for Alfred Deller the mm-hmm. great English countertenor and that starts a whole tradition of contemporary writing for or modern day writing for the countertenor mm-hmm. how much of that rep- of that modern repertoire have you delved into have you looked at Oberon or 
Um, any of the other sort of more recent contemporary uh, countertenor roles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I've sung a few roles in contemporary repertoire. I think I've sung more Baroque repertoire than contemporary, but I've definitely sung a lot of arias, especially excerpts and things from the contemporary repertoire, and I love singing that music as well. Um, there's something about the fact that most of Handel's music was written for castrati, who were, you know, our voices, we try to kind of replicate the effects that they made with their voices, but obviously it's just different, whereas singing certain things that were written for countertenor, um, you know, there's something very vocally gratifying, I find, about some of that. Obviously, I find certain castrati who Handel wrote for, my vocal range lines up pretty well with, and you kind of identify the couple historical castrati who, like, oh, the roles for Caristini fit me pretty well. Or, you know, you find your kind of kindred <laughs> uh-huh. spirits. Who's your, um, who's your castrato spirit I would say uh, Senesino, uh-huh. Caristini. You know, there are a few who I kind of look at the roles that they sing usually fit me uh, uh-huh. pretty well. But, um, but it's really exciting, too, to sing some of the contemporary repertoire. And what I love, too, about the contemporary repertoire is that these are composers writing now and more recently, but especially you know, just about topics that are really relevant for today. Handel's music is, of course, still as relevant as ever, but there's something about, you know, for example, probably my favorite piece to sing that I've ever sung is this aria from an opera called Flight by Jonathan Dove, uh, which was premiered, I think, in 1998 or 1999 at the Glyndebourne Festival in England. But it's the true story of this Iranian refugee who was stranded at the Charles de Gaulle airport kind of, you know, pending his visa stuff, getting sorted out, but fleeing persecution in his home country. And the, it's a, a comic opera mostly. It's a great opera. But the, um, the climax of the whole opera is at the very end, the refugee, which is the character sung by a countertenor, sings this aria called Dawn Still Darkness, where he recounts the story of his, his fleeing and of the death of his twin brother as they fled in the wheels of an airplane, which is a true story about a lot of refugees would kind of hide in the um, kind of the barrels of, of these airplanes uh, that were taking off from airports. And then when the landing gear would open, as they would approach these European countries, they would kind of fall out of the sky. And some of them would get lucky and land places where they could survive, and some of them would die as they kind of fell off. And so The Refugee, which is this aria that I've sung many times and love singing, I mean, he sings this aria where he recounts this story, and it's just harrowing. Obviously, it was written 20 years ago, but it's more relevant than ever with all the refugee crises, you know, encircling the world. And, you know, to sing music like that that was written for a countertenor voice about a topic that is so specific to the current moment, um, there's something so artistically gratifying about that. And, you know, I just feel very lucky to have the opportunity to sing music like that. Great. So what's next? What what are you doing after this when you leave here? What's your next assignment? Absolutely. So um, we have Handel's Orlando at San Francisco Opera. And then after that, um, pretty immediately after, I go to Europe for Placido Domingo's Operalia competition, which I'm very excited to have been selected as one of this year's competitors. Congratulations. Um, thank you. It's a competition I've admired for, you know, kind of since I first got into this and, uh, you know, watched the live stream of and all that. And uh, this was the first year I applied and I was lucky to get in. So I'm really excited about that. It's taking place in Prague. So I'll be over there for a few weeks uh, in July. And then I come back to San Francisco for a little bit. But then the next performances I do after that are um, in li- a little bit later in the fall. I reprise Date King David and Handel Saul, um, but this time in a fully staged production at Houston Grand Opera. Um, and so that'll be my first time singing the role in a f- you know, fully staged production. And it's this amazing production, also from the Glyndebourne Festival, actually, directed by this amazing director, Barry Kosky. And... Um, I'm just I'm really looking forward to digging even more into David over a, a long opera rehearsal process and and you know multiple more performances. I'm I feel very lucky that I've gotten to perform. It's an amazing role that I 
just loved singing, you know, a couple of weeks ago with Philharmonia Broke. And I feel very lucky that in the span of about, you know, seven, eight months to get to do it with, you know, one of the absolute preeminent Baroque orchestras in the United States and the world, Philharmonia Baroque, based, of course, here in the Bay Area, and then to do it uh, in a stage production at Houston Grand Opera, I feel very lucky. Great. And do you have one more year as an Adler fellow? I know, so I no, finished in December. Yeah. Oh, okay, you're done so, with them. You... Yeah. Well, Arie, uh, thank you so much for coming. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you and to hear you singing, and we hope you go from strength to strength. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Joshua Cosman and our guest, Ari Nussbaum-Cohen. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Midnight Special by Ease Jammy Jams. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. (laughs) 